0: This podcast is brought to you by NAB, more than money.
1: Welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topic of property and explores how they affect you. I'm your host, Alice Stoltz. We have a jam-packed episode this week. To kick things off, Professor Stephen Rowley from Curtin University joins us to unpack recent research by the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute. In our interview with him, we ask if building houses could, in fact, rebuild Australia. Then we have domain senior news journalist Elizabeth Redman on to chat through the latest Australian Financial Review Rich List from a property perspective. And in the final part of this episode, we learn about low-waste living. We hear from a colleague of mine who has found herself house-sitting in a low-waste home. She shares with us what she's learned. And we receive some surprising practical tips for cutting household waste from Lottie DL, founder of Banish, an online store and education platform which aims to help Aussies reduce their waste. Boosting home building and construction have been flagged as a key part of the government's plan to get the Australian economy back on track. Since the pandemic hit, we've seen the introduction of home builder, the extension of the first Homeland Deposit Scheme and numerous policy changes announced across the station and territories to boost housing demand and support the sector but the level of intervention will need to be far greater if the housing industry is to help rebuild the Australian economy, according to recent research by the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute. With us today to talk through the findings is Professor Stephen Rowley from Curtin University. Stephen, thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Before we get into some of the key findings from your research, I want to backtrack a little bit. Why exactly is housing and residential construction seen as a key path to rebuilding the economy? Presumably, there's been lots of great success with this in the past.
2: Certainly post-wars, the house building industry has been used to uh, really stimulate an economic recovery and get people back to work. So there's a massive uh, house building program post-World War II in Australia, for example, And also, GFC, the Rudd government used around about 10 billion worth of. Housing incentives, if you like, to get the economy going, and and the reason is it's due to the multiplier effect. If you invest about one dollar into housing, you get about three dollar return to the economy because of the the knock on effects of new housing, people going out, and obviously buying the furniture, the moving involved, those sort of knock on effects. So that multiplier effect means investment in housing does have a good economic sort of recovery stimulus, if you like. It just feeds through. Into other parts of the economy.
1: We've seen numerous policies announced this year to try and boost housing demand. We've obviously had Home Builder and then an extension to the first home loan deposit scheme and changes to some station territory incentives and grants. How effective would you say these changes have been?
2: Well I think it varies by state, but I think Home Builder has been effective. If the intention was to keep people in jobs and, and to create some activity, then it certainly has been successful. So, for example, in, in Western Australia, we've had uh, some really significant increases in land and, and house sales coming off an extremely low base. And so home builder was combined with the state's building bonus scheme, and then you can add in the first home loan grant, and, and then you've got stamp duty relief as well. So you could get up to almost up to $70,000 uh, as an incentive, and, and given the median land Land price is about two hundred and fifty thousand a little bit less that 's a significant help for somebody to get into a new build property so activity no surprise is, is jumped significantly um, in it's somewhere like greater Sydney where the seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar price cap, which is the cap from from home Builder, is, is way below the median it, it hasn 't had such a big impact. But state governments have done quite a bit. So some state governments have put money into refurbishment into new social housing development, which again, creates jobs in the industry, but I think even more importantly, creates, uh, you know, housing that's uh, desperately needed for, for those on um, low incomes. Uh, there's been some tax changes and planning reform as well. So the New South Wales government has altered some tax settings around land tax to make build to rent, more viable. So this is where you've got um, developers or investors actually creating products specifically to, to rent and so where you do have a shortage in the rental market that's extremely useful product so i mean there has been quite a lot going on and federal governments have put another 1 billion dollars into the national housing finance and investment corporation to help fund community housing sector over a period of time and you mentioned the first home loan deposit scheme so quite a lot going on for people particularly who perhaps would have bought anyway the, those grant supports really help people that would have got into the market in any case they can sustain a mortgage They have some level of of deposit, but just not enough going on for those in, in the most need, really.
1: And how does this compare to action taken overseas? Is this housing industry key to other economic recovery agendas?
2: Yeah, there's been a lot going on overseas, quite a lot targeted at sort of energy efficiency measures. So the UK government, for example, have provided a retrofitting, or green retrofitting grants to households, but they've also brought forward some significant um, new build affordable housing, also some stamp duty concessions. There's been some activity in, in Ireland too, some more uh, money pumped into to social housing. New Zealand have been active uh, as well and 8 billion stimulus in housing and infrastructure development. And uh, also the European Union have pumped in a, a lot of money, particularly, again, around those sort of energy uh, efficiency uh, measures. So um, quite a lot of money pumped in into the uh, economy, particularly, as I say, around energy efficiency and, and social housing. So, you know, Australia certainly has is, is done its part, but again, a little bit short when it comes to those sort of uh, measures that, that perhaps would increase the sustainability of our stock and, and deliver on the social housing front.
1: Stephen, I suppose the key question then is, is it possible for Australia to build its way out of a recession? And if that is the case, what more needs to be done?
2: If we really want to build ourselves out of a recession, we need to be building at rates that are much higher than they are at the moment. So for example, based on two years ago, New South Wales is building and Queensland are building 29% fewer dwellings. So that's a big drop in in two years. So even to get back up to the rates that we were building at two years ago requires a a significant amount of money to try and create that uh, new dwelling demand. So there's, there's two ways you can do it. The first is uh, to create demand, and, and that's where these grants come in. So you're basically incentivizing consumers to go out there and, and build new housing. And uh, so the government reckons that HomeBuilder will create around 27,000 new dwellings, which is about half of the 53,000 just in the uh, six states required to get back up to the level of two years ago. So I think at, at the moment, our level of home building is well, it's pretty low, to be honest, in, in historic terms, and it's falling. So we really need to try and increase that in order to generate that economic uh, activity. So it, it does rely on, on governments to create that demand. And I think the, the, the biggest problem with the um, demand side incentives is you tend to pull forward demand. So if you offer somebody 25000 or $45,000 in, in grants, somebody who might have built a year from now or two years from now, basically bring forward their their decision. So you leave a a vacuum uh, at the end of that uh, stimulus package. So you you stimulate activity in the short term and then you've got a problem moving forward it's a very difficult thing to do unless you you sort of build directly which is the supply side measure to stimulate activity where you're actually using social housing as a mechanism to increase construction very expensive as, as i mentioned but at least you can guarantee or almost guarantee a supply of of new housing in in that respect so a combination would be good. At the moment, we've got the demand side stuff and we're pretty short on that supply side. So there's a lot that could be done. It's whether government actually has an appetite to invest you know, several billion dollars into social housing and it's, um, it's not looking so promising at the moment.
1: Mm. Stephen, there's certainly a lot for us to think about after that discussion. Thank you so much for joining us on Property Unpacked.
2: Not a problem. It's been a pleasure.
1: The biggest property names on the AFR rich list have been revealed, with a string of property developers and trophy homeowners topping this year's list. Of the 200 richest in Australia, almost a quarter built their empire in the property sector, with many more rich listers putting their wealth towards substantial real estate holdings. Here to take us through this year's Rich List is Domain Senior News Journalist, Elizabeth Redman. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Alice. So, Elizabeth, what is the dirt? Who are the
3: biggest property players on this year's list? Well, they own quite a lot of dirt, Alice. (laughs) The biggest property developer on the list this year uh, comes in at fourth place, and that's um, a gentleman by the name of Hui Wing Mao and um he's made his fortune in uh, property developments uh in china as well as in australia and um he is worth 18.06 Billion dollars, which is a fortune that I, I do struggle to get my head around a little bit. There's a, a number of other property developers, big property owners at the top of the list. So Harry Triggerboff is the founder of Meriton. He's seventh on the list with a fortune of 14.42 billion dollars, and well known for building apartment towers, particularly all over Sydney. And then some of the others in the top 10 are Frank Lowy, who is the founder of Westfield. He's worth 8.3 billion. And then Kerry Stokes, who many people know as a media player, the chairman of Seven, but he's um, built substantial wealth by diversifying his holdings. So he has a big stake in a building materials company called Boral um, and also owns part of an aged care company, SGR. He's ranked 10th and he's worth $6.26 billion. Are there any females in this list, Elizabeth, just out of interest? Uh, th- there are, there are, absolutely. The richest person in Australia is a woman, actually, and that's um, Gina Reinhardt, who made her money in iron ore mining. So, you know, not so much kind of building apartments, but she is this year valued at twenty eight point eight nine billion dollars. Now Elizabeth if we think about what this list could
1: look like next year from a property perspective and and I'm talking about the property sector of this list or people who are in the property market how could that look do you think particularly enduring longer and longer in the pandemic and the economic sort of ramifications of that
3: playing out over a 12-month period how do you think that will shape that list next year? Mm. So it's likely that into next year we'll still see quite widespread working from home and people might also be hesitant to spend so much time in shopping centres, they might be quite used to shopping online and um, having their products delivered. And so it's likely that again, next year, we're not going to see a big bounce back in um, the values of CBD office buildings or shopping centres. Certainly, you know, those who've made their fortunes in them, I expect (laughs) will continue to have very substantial holdings, but they're not likely to have a a big kind of jump in that wealth over the next year. There are some sectors of property that are coming more into favour. So, because people have been doing so much shopping online, e-commerce assets are becoming very important and valuable. So, a big example of that is Greg Goodman. He owns a company or runs a company called uh, Goodman Group and they own warehouses and lease them out to, among others, e-commerce operators such as Amazon, you know, who need somewhere to store all the goods that they're then delivering to your house when you buy them. So, I think that sector will become uh, more important and also farming, agricultural land will likely grow in value, or become more important as well as we look to establish more food security in Australia and Think about exporting as well, you know, being the food bowl of Asia is the line that's often used. It's just fascinating to think about how fragmented
1: those areas are going to become, isn't it? When you think of also the investment that those property players in, particularly Westfield and Chadstone, have invested in those centres over the years. And that, in effect, there's a certain part of them that sort of almost become a bit redundant, and these warehouses could become that sort of next futuristic wealth belt for property investors. It's really just quite fascinating what's on the horizon and and how also many elements of it back to
3: agriculture are going
1: full circle.
3: And, and I think some of them see that, you know, and try and take advantage of it. So, Frank Lloyd, for example, they have been selling down and uh, their family stake in a couple of years ago sold um, Westfield's international malls to a, a French company because they could see the rise of online shopping. So, I think, you know, there'll be canny players looking always to, you know, new trends to try and um, preserve the, the wealth that they have. It's certainly an interesting insight into how the other half live, Elizabeth. So,
1: thank you so much for joining me today. They Thanks for having me. Now we'll hear from Danielle, a colleague who is currently house-sitting in Sydney's Inner West. For the past fortnight, she has had to adapt what is a low-waste household, including forgoing
0: bin liners and repurposing her organic food waste. Hi, my name is Danny and I'm from Sydney's Inner West. I'd say I'm quite an environmentally conscious person on a larger scale. I'm a long-term vegetarian and I don't own or drive a car. But something I have realised in the past couple of weeks is my household waste is quite substantial. I've had to house it for family nearby and they run what you would consider a low waste household. The house is quite large. They have four chickens, a huge veggie garden with composting. They have solar panels and a battery. They have three bins instead of the traditional two. They have a recycling bin, an organic waste bin, and then the smallest of those three bins is the rubbish bin. They don't have plastic bags. Coming from a house where I use quite a lot of plastic, it was a bit of a shock having to try and fit all my rubbish into this tiny kitchen bin. You know, a lot of supermarket foods come wrapped in plastic, which just fills up that bin straight away. So I've sort of not been buying foods with plastic I've been trying to eat out of their veggie garden as much as possible also being a vegetarian eat a lot of veggies you know you can cook with something like leek or cauliflower and half of that vegetable usually the green bits ends up in the rubbish bin so instead having the chickens or the option to put into the composting is fantastic I think A huge barrier for a lot of people into going low waste is thinking that it's, you know, not as clean, but there are cleaning products that make you still feel as clean as if you were using disposable things. So I think once I end up back at my own place, there's definitely a few things I'll take with me in terms of learnings. I'd love to set up a compost bin now for my organic waste, and I also just think using less cleaning products and also plastic bags are really just not necessary I think me and my family always have a stash of plastic bags but you know they don't need to be used as bin liners it's probably not as clean as a lot of people would like but it can do a huge part in you know your impact on the environment.
1: With my colleague Danielle putting life in a low-waste house to the test, it got the team and I thinking about what more we could do around our homes to cut back on the amount of rubbish we're sending to landfill each year. We've spoken on the podcast before about some of the big picture changes, like investing in solar and better insulation to create a more sustainable space, but reducing rubbish is also key to making a more environmentally friendly home. We know the basics of cutting back on single-use plastics using things like keep cups and reusable bags when and where we can but where should we be focusing next? Joining us today to take us through the next steps is Lottie Diel, founder of Banish, an online and education platform which aims to help Aussies reduce their waste. Lottie, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to just help spread the word. And
4: if everyone can leave this episode making one small change, then I'm a happy chappy.
1: Yeah. And the wonderful thing about this area is it does have such a positive sort of infection, doesn't it? It sort of prompts another person to try to do the same thing. It is infectious. You're
4: right. And I think we're seeing a lot more on social media during COVID, everybody making their own bread and really getting into everything, which doesn't really seem sustainable, but it is. It's just going back to our roots. It's actually so traditional and it's what we all used to do. So, it's actually just taking a couple of steps backwards in order to take four steps forwards.
1: Now, Lottie, tell us about your own experiences and how far back you've cut waste from your own life. Yes. So, I decided to
4: kind of make a personal pact to live more sustainably. I just knew that I wanted to live better and realistically for the everyday person living a zero-waste lifestyle isn't going to be possible. And for me I just thought, well, if we want people to live sustainably, then it needs to be easy. It needs to be so simple that there's no reason not to live sustainably. So Banish was kind of founded because there wasn't really many people talking about sustainability and how to do the small, simple, basic things. As you see people make those sustainable switches, when you're doing it yourself, it's quite addictive. You start in your bathroom and you might swap your plastic tooth first for a bamboo toothbrush and then you go, okay, well, what's next? And it's just, it does kind of really build up. So I don't think I can say that there's a certain percentage that I've cut my waste back by, but I took out our bins yesterday and I live in a household of three and we had half of a plastic bag filled with rubbish in there.
1: What is the best place to start if people who are complete novices are looking to cut back? I'd probably say that the best place to start would be looking at what you're bringing
4: into your home. So, when you do go to your grocery store and you're looking at two different types of pasta to buy, you've got one that's in a plastic bag, and then you've got one that's in a cardboard box. And it could be as simple as picking up that one that's in a cardboard box and taking it home. So I think if we look at the amount of plastic that we bring in and the products that we're buying, that's a really great start. So it's just making a more conscious consumer choice. It's going to be better for you and the planet. Now, Lottie, this is the time for confessions. What do you find the most challenging? Bathroom and beauty for me. So I'm kind of trying to use up everything and then make sustainable switches. But it is really difficult to find legitimate brands that are doing the right thing. And when I finish with my floss, I'm then replacing it with a compostable dental floss, for example
1: compostable dental floss. I'm mortified to say I didn't even know such a thing existed, but now you've got me thinking, oh my gosh, wow. Okay. Everything you think of in the bathroom
4: there is a sustainable solution. The only one I must confess that I haven't been able to find is a plastic-free shower cap. Ah. Because you kind of need plastic in order to keep the to keep obviously the water out. Yes. Lottie, tell me about cleaning. How have you approached that? Yeah cleaning is obviously a huge, huge element and it's something not only from a packaging perspective but a toxins perspective that we need to be really careful of. So, again, coming back to basics, bicarb is great. White vinegar is another amazing cleaner And then I just love lemons. Those three common household items and you could clean just about everything and anything.
1: Lottie, that's some really thoughtful advice there. Thank you for taking us through it and thank you for sort of explaining it. You've certainly inspired me. So well done and thank you again for speaking with us. No, thanks so much for having me today, Alice. You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and look out for further episodes dropping every Thursday. If you have your own property story to tell us or a question we could perhaps help answer, we always love to hear from you. Email us at propertyunpacked at domain.com.au.
0: This podcast is brought to you by NAB, more than money.
1: This episode was produced by Adrian Lowe, Kate Burke and Danielle Gianopoulos. It was edited and mixed by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au. Talk to you next week.